Hey Genesis fam, this is Tyler, and as you can tell, I'm in my living room today because last night at church, our cameras didn't work. I don't know, the audio didn't come through, and I guess it's just what happens when I'm also the tech guy at church, and I know very little about this stuff. So with that, you get me in my living room, and you know, it's still the same sermon, so I'm excited to still get to preach this again because Chris gave me the conversation of going deeper in the scriptures. And to be honest with you guys, it's been a very complex conversation in my life or just journey in my life up until a couple years ago. And I'll give you just a bit of background. I'm from Southern Indiana, Northern Kentucky. So I am both a reject of the South and the Midwest. No one really claims me, no big deal. But I say that just to give you a bit of reference on a map that I'm, where I'm from is kind of the tip top of what you might know is the Bible Belt. And I get it, it's a totally niche market in America, (laughs) for better or worse. I know many of us West Coasters frown down upon it. Whatever, I don't take offense, but I'm actually really grateful for where I grew up because I didn't walk with Jesus for a lot of my life. And so when I did later on in high school, I started going to a church community that loved me. And I mean like in the community sense, you know what I'm saying. And with that being said, I felt so included into the Jesus community and it was a very safe place for me to start walking with Jesus. And even some of my friends today, my best friends today, are, are from that youth group and we live across the country from one another now. So I'm grateful beyond what I could even begin to communicate for that church and the family that I had there. But the honest truth is, is that I just never learned how to read the Bible. I definitely read the Bible but I just never learned how to read the Bible. And so what I did is I brought my 21st century, you know, Midwestern, Southern presuppositions to the Bible. And that worked great until I graduated college four and a half, five years ago. And in that time uh, at college, I was given all the books to read. And, And while I was definitely taught how to think in some ways, I was mostly taught what to believe. And what happened is after college, I started reading a bunch of authors who just brought up some new conversations. I think very helpful and good conversations sometimes, other times not so often. But what happened is during that time, I couldn't, I started learning a lot of stuff that I couldn't fit into the framework of the Bible that I had growing up. And so as I started to kind of get these doubts and these questions and these new theological ideas into one framework, they just didn't all fit together. And so instead of going deeper, I just ran. I completely deconstructed my faith. I was pretty sure I didn't even believe in God anymore, to be honest. And just to be honest with you, Genesis, I was a pastor on staff at Genesis, and I didn't even know if I believed in God anymore. And so I ran. And for many of you, you've got a very similar story. And I would just like to say, I'd love to grab a coffee with you. Please don't hesitate to ever reach out to me. You can, if you want to email me, tyler at genesiscollective.org or just see me at church or text me or whatever. I would actually love to just spend time with you having some conversations around the big questions and doubts and stories of the scripture that are very worth going deeper together in. But I also would just say today isn't necessarily about those things. There's much to be said, much I wish I could say, and much that you wish I would say that I probably just won't say today. But I do know just from being in this community for almost five years now, from the stories that I've heard from you, the amount of relationships I've had, and then just the reality of the modern 
Western evangelical church currently, um, many of you have a very similar story or experience with the scriptures as I do. And because of that, I've been stressing about saying this all week, to be honest. And so my request is just that you hear me in love and humility first and foremost and grace. That if you grew up in a similar context that I did, or you learned to kind of approach the Bible in a way that later on down the road, things didn't quite fit into your framework, then I just want to suggest that there's a strong likelihood, there's a very strong likelihood that you were given a framework that was really helpful for you you to start walking with Jesus, to start reading the Bible through. But to be honest, it's not going to be your companion for the long road ahead. It was really helpful to start you on your journey, but you won't end there with it. And so I hope you hear that in grace and love and humility more than anything. But I just recognize that we've all read things like the Bible is God-breathed or God-inspired. And we've been told that it's true and it's trustworthy. But within that same framework, did you also learn the historical setting of the ancient Near East? And how that radically influenced how the storytellers used imagery to communicate history and how they used metaphor to communicate truths that would last through the millennia? Or did you learn the difference between how an ancient Eastern person thinks and communicates versus how a more modern Western person in our society thinks and communicates and reads and writes? And then I would even just ask, did you learn the cohesive narrative from Genesis to Revelation? Because there truly is one. It's not just a random smattering of books. There's one narrative. And unfortunately, many of us haven't. I was one of those people who didn't, for better or worse. And and I think what that's really caused is a large backlash between the, the late Gen X generations down into millennial, into Gen Z, that just kind of doesn't even know what to do with the Bible now. Like, maybe we think there's some good inspiration in there, but I don't know, is it actually true? Like, are you telling me that every single thing in here is true and trustworthy? Or what about something so ancient and old? How could I possibly wrap my life in and up it, however you would say that, around it and in it, if it's so ancient and old? How could it still speak to me today? And so we, we just don't. We don't engage it. And we keep it at an arm's distance, and we deconstruct it, and we fight over it, and we accuse it. And so Genesis tonight, my goal, or I guess this morning, my goal is just to help you rebuild and recapture the beauty of the scriptures, the scriptures that Jesus so dearly loved. He loved them. In fact, it just strikes me that like every other word from Jesus in the gospel encounters, I mean, he cannot go a sentence without some sort of reference to the Old Testament, some quote from the scriptures or a narrative from the scriptures. And yet so many of us today, we just want to throw it out. Like as if somehow in 2022, we've just advanced beyond our need for the scriptures, even though Jesus for sure hadn't. He loved them. One of my friends this week reminded me that so many of us, yet still in in light of this truth, want to hear from God. We want him to speak into our lives, and yet so few of us actually read his word, actually go deep and meditate in it. As I was reading the Bible this week, I was in Psalm 119. It's the very longest chapter in the Bible. 
And I was just amazed at the words these writers were using. I just want to read a couple to you from Psalm 119. The writer says, Your words, O Lord, are sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey on my lips. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. That your words, Lord, are pure and trustworthy. See, these, how are, these, this is how the original hearers and writers of the scriptures felt about the scripture. And so as we get into this conversation, I just want to ask you, is this how you feel about the scriptures? And just be honest with yourself. There's obviously many reasons why you do or don't, and I get that. But to, today, the invitation for you is just to bring your biggest questions and your biggest doubts. Like, you have permission in this community to bring your questions and your doubts and then just let them be the catalyst for you to go deeper in your exploration of the study of the scriptures rather than you know your your uh, knee-jerk reaction to these questions and doubts just being to run and act like you were never even walked with jesus in the first place i wonder if you could just pause and take a deeper look Become an inquisitive reader. Ask the questions. Become familiar with the overarching narrative of the scriptures. And then, and then make your decision about what you believe about the scriptures. And so as we kind of get into processing through the scriptures a little bit more, I want to begin by recognizing a couple of the frameworks that we often read the Bible from. And like I said earlier, these were probably very helpful to get us started reading the Bible, and praise God for that. That's a really good thing. But they won't be our companion for the long journey ahead with the Lord, and it's, it's beautiful. And so what I'm going to do now is just spend about 10 minutes kind of constructing or, or deconstructing, for that matter, many of the frames that we've read it through, and then spend about 15 minutes on the back end reframing the Bible. So... Get in with me. It's, I've got six frameworks to go, to go through up top that I think will, might bring some uh, resonance to you. You might, you might recognize these. They might be familiar ones to you. So the first is the moral handbook framework. And you've heard the old adage, right? Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. It's this idea that God endorses everything that happens in the scriptures. Therefore, I live by it. And I would just say that that's honestly a very sad misrepresentation of the scriptures. Because the reality is, is most biblical characters are not portrayed positively. And in fact, they're pretty horrible people. We see dishonest and abusive leaders. We see slavery and gluttony and unjustified killings and sexual abuse. So, I mean, already, if you're just opening the Bible and looking for moral inspiration, you're not going to find it in these kind of stories. And to be honest, I don't even think that's the biggest problem with the moral handbook framework. I think actually the biggest problem is that 99.99999% of the time we read the Bible as a narrative that's all about me. Not the risen, glorified King Jesus, but me. It's a moral handbook that basically tells me how to live so I can get off earth and go to heaven one day. And as Tim Mackey says about this sort of framework, now there's just something, there's just something about, this, about making the scriptures all about me 
that truly does not fulfill what Jesus says about the scriptures. And so that's the moral handbook framework. And maybe you've become familiar with that one. Another one that uh, was, was very helpful for me was this idea that Jonathan Pennington calls the whatever strikes me framework. And I say it was helpful in the sense of like exposing the way that I did this growing up. And this is often really good for one-liner sermons when you haven't prepared and you just need something to go with, but it completely dismisses the cohesive narrative of the Bible. And so we read things like uh, Romans 8, you know, I'm more than a conqueror. And we're like, yeah, that stuff's the honey to my lips right there, right? Or Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we don't realize that even the, the, the context that Paul's speaking into is living a content life with little or much money. And in fact, shocker, it has nothing to do with scoring touchdowns in football, contrary to many tattoo beliefs. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a shocker sometimes. But what ends up happening is that we pull inspiration out of the scriptures that maybe sort of kind of have to do with what the author was getting at, but mostly not. And we pull it out and then we apply it to our lives. And the problem with that is we tend to take the things we like and then leave the things we don't like. We come with a lens that judges the scriptures based on what strikes me versus what doesn't and what lands well with me and what doesn't. And Genesis, this framework just won't be your companion on the long road ahead. So that's number two. And then we have the isolated chunks framework. And so the idea of this is kind of reading a smaller story within the context of a bigger story, but you're just not using the context of the bigger story, to be honest. And so this is often good for devotion, but it's actually pretty bad for theology. Because again, we're dismissing the larger narrative that's going on when we take a small story out of the narrative of the large story. And so a good example of this is the um, Mark 4, when Jesus calms the storm. And the inspiration we take from that is, oh, Jesus will calm the storms in your life. And to be honest with you, I mean, hope, like, I hope that's true for all of us, but there are moments in our lives where we just got to walk through the storm. So it doesn't calm all of them all the time. Then what's it really about? And, and there's so much. I actually want to go much deeper in, in that story specifically. It's so full of Genesis and Exodus language. Of, it's so good. But that's, like I said, it's not this moment right here. Or we read of David defeating Goliath. And we, you know, the lesson we take from that is, oh yeah, and God will slay the giants in your life. And again, I, I hope so. And while those are two stories that are actually much more rich, with the narrative of God that point us to our need for God, we really just make them about me. And again, I just don't think that's a helpful framework to read the Bible through. Now the next one, I recognize the irony in this one. It's called the whatever my pastor says framework. (laughs) And hey, I'm submitting this one to you humbly. And I really hope that you did grow up with a pastor who loved the scriptures and who was deep in the study of them and meditated on them and delighted in them and communicated them with authenticity to, its, to both its spiritual matter and the uh, ancient historical setting that it came from. But the truth is, is that if this is the only framework that you read the Bible through, then even if you have the smartest pastor, you're being taught what to think or what to believe, 
but not how to think or how to read. And so what typically happens is we just run around like chickens who can't feed ourselves. And so Sunday becomes the only spiritual highlight of our week. And we just do our best to ride that wave all the way until the next Sunday where we can get inspired again to do the same thing over and over. And that one was most definitely me for a long time. All right, now I hope you're still with me because I just have two more. And uh, this one's not controversial at all. Not. I call this one the literal versus literate framework. And this typically happens when we try to read the entire Bible like Romans, a book of doctrine and orthodoxy and just deep theology and discourse. And the reality is, is that there are all sorts of genres within the scripture that a faithful reader of the text kind of has to take, you know, put on their historical glasses to read but then set those aside to put on their poetry glasses and then set those aside to put on their subversive prophetic glasses and, and then your wisdom literature and your apocalyptic and discourse, you, you get the point. And we actually do this all the time in life. An example of this is we'd read an article that says, Albert Courier wins the New York City Marathon with a record four minute and 54 second mile pace. And we're like, Oh my gosh, four, four minutes and 54 seconds per mile for 26 miles. Doesn't even seem humanly possible. My car can barely do that, right? <laughs> and then the next one we read is, you know, Billie Eilish takes a stage and the crowd explodes. And we're not like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're all dead, right? No, we're not at all. We, we get the, the deeper truth that's communicating in metaphor. Or, of course, the meme of a blonde person who wishes they studied more for their Enneagram test, right? Like, we don't need it explained to us. We, we kind of know how to take on and off our glasses to read different genres. But for some reason, we think we can't do this with the Bible. And so the argument here is typically, well, then what? Do we just get to pick what's, what's literal and what's not literal? And to that, I say, no way. Absolutely not. Not at all. One of my seminary professors used to say that when we're reading a genre of scripture, we are essentially writing or we're, we're, we're signing a contract that says to the author, I will read this in the way that it was meant to be read, in the way it was written. But this takes many, many, many years to develop. And honestly, I feel almost hypocritical for speaking on this because this is something I'm so new to in the last years and I'm, I'm going as deep as I can in it, but learning to lear learn how to read apocalyptic literature and poetry and discourse and on and on, all those different genres in the Bible. And so we see this, a good example would be at the end of the Bible in Revelation when John's writing of the risen King Jesus and he says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. It's this very idea of purity. He is completely pure. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. But his voice is powerful and strong. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. It's this idea that his word divides truth from untruth and good from evil. And yet, instead, we get so caught up in these cultural wars trying to debate theologies that honestly the biblical readers and writers just weren't even asking. And so 
Another good example of this would be the creation narrative in Genesis. And really what happens is we, okay, hold on, side note, there is somebody with a leaf blower outside of my house, and so I'm just going to go close the window and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. But example, the Genesis creation narrative. So we tend to just fight about was the earth created 6,000 years ago in six days. But Genesis, the creation narrative in Genesis, it doesn't communicate history the way you or I would as if we just set a camera up to record the whole thing and then watched it on playback again. But actually it's historical poetry, which is full of truth. And it is the historical account of God creating the world, but not in the way that you or I might approach the same conversation. And so what we do is we tend to fight about it a ton, and then we just miss out on what the actual story is about. That it's about a very good God. He's not like the other deities of the ancient world. And he creates humans and he calls them very good. Again, they're not pain in this, they're not a pain in the side like they are to the other deities in the ancient world. But in fact, they're his partners, his co-rulers on the earth. So to, to bring earth and heaven together as one reality, just that was as it was meant to be. And this is the very story that influences the rest of the biblical narrative. But instead of recognizing that, we just fight about it. When the reality is, none of us were even alive back then. Like, nobody knows when the earth was created. So, that's the literal versus literate framework. It's a hotly contested one. I get it. But I have one more for you. And this is from Tim Mackey. Again, very helpful. Because this one is a step forward. It recognizes that there is a narrative to the Bible. So he calls it the creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative. And basically what this is, is if if you heard the story of the Bible like this, that God created the world and he thought it was good. He called it good. And then he created humans, but apparently they weren't as good as we thought. And they really screw up. And so God needs to punish them. And really they deserve death. But instead of getting death, God just banishes them from his presence. But instead of, instead of killing them, we just see thousands and thousands and thousands of years go by until finally Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he takes the death that we so deserved. He dies in our place. And because of that, we can get off earth and go to heaven one day. And again, that's, there is some truth in that overarching narrative. Not, it's not all true, but it's all about me. And that's a very big problem with it again. But another example, I want to do a visual example. Again, this is from Tim Mackey. It was so helpful. So we take the idea of creation and fall, right? So that's Genesis 1 to 3. So that is literally the first two and a half pages of the Bible, basically. It's this much of the Bible. I don't know why I'm struggling to get it open. That much right there, okay? And then we take redemption and restoration. And I'm just going to be generous and say that's the entire New Testament. And then I'm even going to be generous and just include the glossary and the maps, right? (laughs) So we're talking this much of the Bible. Well, then in this framework, what about all of this? What about these 1,500 other pages that, that are still the inspired word of God? It just seems like in this framework, they're not as needed. And I just would agree with all of us and say that these are the natural frameworks that we bring to the Bible when we aren't taught how to read it. And for many of you, you found yourselves 
in one or a few of these frameworks. And maybe it's even hard for you to see because it kind of exposes why you stopped trusting the Bible. Or maybe it's hard for you to read because you realize these are, these are the very frameworks that you decided it's why you couldn't actually call yourself a Christian anymore. Or maybe even for some of you, it reminds you of the terrible experiences you've had with people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. And so tonight, more than anything, more than anything, I want to help reframe the Bible for you. I want to communicate what Jesus says about the Bible. So that it's no longer a pain in your butt or a thorn in your side. But that as you meditate on it, you begin to find the Jesus, the beauty that Jesus found in it. And as you're meditating and going deeper, that the Spirit would lead you to delight in it that you would taste its sweet, sweet flavors. And in your moments of desperation and in your moments of celebration, you would pant for the very words that we find in these scriptures. And my greatest hope is that you would encounter the living God of the Bible who is fully expressed in the man of Jesus. That's my prayer for us, Genesis. So what I want to do now is I just want to spend about 15 minutes reframing the Bible, a new way for us to engage, or really a historic way, the way I I believe it was meant to be. And so I just want to say disclaimer up front, this is not my material whatsoever. This is the Bible Project. You might be very familiar with them. I can't recommend them enough, their podcasts, their videos, you name it, but they're fantastic. And basically the framework that they've provided to read through the Bible is this. That the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And in fact, this actually isn't even unique to them. This is the very framework that Jesus explains the scriptures through. And so I just want to take you to Luke chapter 24. If you're sitting down with your Bible and reading, you are a very studious podcast listener. That's amazing. (laughs) You can go there with me, but I'll be in Luke chapter 24 verses 25, and then I'll jump down to 44. So this is, this is how Jesus frames the Bible right here. Verse 25, he said to them, no, let me give you some context. So this is after he's risen from the dead. He is king over all creation. And in the, he's walking down the Emmaus road and encounters two of his followers who are just sad. They thought that Jesus was the one, they said. They thought he was the one to come and rescue Israel. And this is where he finds them. And as he begins processing and conversating with him, he says this, How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Please recognize here, like, they're not super offended at the words he just used. It's ancient language. In fact, they invite him into his home, into their home, for a a dinner later on. So, Beautiful. How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's a big piece right there, in all the scriptures. A couple verses later in verse 44, it says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those three 
or just shorthand, or I guess longhand for saying what we know of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. But then catch this. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, the entire Bible does point to Jesus in narrative, in poetry, in discourse, in metaphor, in plain truths, and in prophets. But we need to be given the tools to see it. And so that's what Jesus does. He continues down the road to Emmaus, giving his friends the tools, giving them a lens, a new framework to open their minds to understand the entire Bible as a unified story that that leads directly to him. And this is where you might say, but Tyler, like there are so many stories in the Bible that don't even mention Jesus. And I say, yes, absolutely. And that's where I think this gets so good. I think I really believe this framework could radically change the way that you engage with scripture. It's not simply a boring handbook of do's and don'ts, but as you're reading it, you're beginning to put the pieces together. You're reading the creation story of Genesis 1 and how God created the world good. And he calls humanity very good. And he calls them, in fact, to be his partners in ruling and caring for creation. And in, in, in this co-partnership, they rule so that heaven and earth may exist as one reality, just as it was meant to be. But in that, you also see the human plight of Genesis 3, that essentially we failed. Instead of ruling with God within righteousness and justice and peace, we chose to rule with the serpent. And our tactics became instead uh, violence and deceit. But you keep reading, and you read of this merciful God who has not given up on his creation, not at all. In fact, he raises up a new family that becomes a nation. You'd know him as the family of Abram, or what we later know as, as the nation of Israel. They multiply into a nation. And again, they're meant to be the redemption story, a light to the world, kind of to show the world what it looks like when heaven invades earth and the king reigns as, as, as king with justice and peace and righteousness. And of course, as people, as his partners. And then throughout the rest of the Genesis story, they do a good job sometimes, <laughs> like sometimes, but then they also do a really horrible job other times. There's very gross and nasty stories in the second half of Genesis. So if you're looking for a moral handbook in the second half of Genesis, like, just don't. Don't even look there. It won't work for you. It's not good. (laughs) But throughout the rest of the story, we begin to see how the influence of the serpent wraps its arms around this family or this nation, and it just keeps getting worse. And so at the, begin- at the end of Genesis, in the beginning of Exodus, uh, it tells the story of how this family ended up as, f- as slaves in a foreign land. Because not only had the serpent captured the trust of Adam and Eve, it did. And not only did it win the trust of Israel, it did. But it had won the trust of the entire world. And so God, uh, he raises up a man, a man named Moses whose name literally means rest. He's called to bring them out of slavery and into rest, the very promised land that God is giving them. And then again, show the world that Yahweh is still king and what it looks like to partner again, to partner together where once again, God dwells amongst his people in righteousness and justice and peace. It's the very idea of the kingdom of God. 
And Moses is actually a pretty good dude. He does a pretty good job most of the time, but ultimately he fails. And Moses, the man whose name means rest, never got to enter the very rest that God was giving them. I just want to pause here and ask you, Genesis, can you see how the Bible is constantly pointing us already in the first two books? I mean, really the first three chapters, but in the first two books to humanity's need for a true human. Or the Messiah word would be, a mess- or the, the Jewish word would be a Messiah. Sorry about that. To come and show us the way. To come and show us how to be partners with God. And ultimately to lead us as king in righteousness and in justice and peace. And if you want to know what the rest of the Old Testament is about, well then just <laughs> take the Genesis narrative and the Exodus narrative and then just put them on repeat for hundreds of years. So what happens is God raises up a leader to be an image bearer to the rest of the world, to rule with, again, righteousness and justice and peace. I know it probably sounds mundane at this point, but all of them fail miserably. And there's a couple people who do it pretty well. I mean, King David, a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, I mean, for a little bit there, he's he's doing great. He builds the very temple that God's presence will dwell in. But even they can't do it fully. David ends up sleeping with another man's wife and then has that man killed instead. So again, I just want to pause and reflect. Genesis, can you see how the entire Bible continues to point us to our need for a true human, a Messiah, to come and show us the way, to show us how to be God's partners and to lead us with what? With righteousness and justice and peace. And so the story continues and God blesses people to be his image bearers and co-rulers in the world and they fail miserably. And so then, and I'm just going through the narrative of the Bible at this point, I hope you're catching that, that then the prophets begin to call out in this subversive language and they're warning Israel, hey, you were meant to be a light to the world. You were meant to be the change, but instead you've just made the problem worse. How could God dwell amongst you or partner with you when you rule alongside the serpent. God's been so faithful to you. He's cared for you. He's rescued you and he has restored you as a nation. And so the prophets just warn them, hey, if you don't change your ways, you will end up like all the other nations that chose to rule alongside the serpent. There will be nothing left of you. And unfortunately, the prophets were right. And Israel didn't (laughs) repent of their ways. They did not change their ways and their sin ran them straight into the ground. And catch this, their sin runs them straight back into exile. I mean, literally, the story is just on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. And then the temple of God was destroyed and foreigners took over their land. And it seemed as if God had completely been abandoned them. Or as N.T. Wright says in his New Testament, uh, right the way he wrote the new testament is god's gone and he's not coming back and so the story uh this story leads us directly into the new testament that's the reality that we land in the new testament but equally so while all of this is going on the prophets are also telling of a truly anointed one who will come along a messiah who will come to rescue israel from this filthy pattern and a king who will come and crush the head of the serpent for good. And that whole story, all of the scriptures are pointing to and are summed up in the very man of Jesus. 
And from there on in the New Testament, every story of Jesus we get, every parable he tells, and every moment we get to peer in to the world of the New Testament, it tells us and points us to the story of how Jesus was enthroned as king of the world on a cross above Jerusalem. Not a throne like many of, the, uh, many of the people thought he would come, but enthroned as king on a cross. He doesn't strike back when they strike him, but in fact, his, his kingdom is advancing now in justice and righteousness and peace. And the story says that we're his co-heirs to the throne, helping lead and spread this same kingdom where heaven and earth become one reality. where God rescues humanity from our endless cycle and justice and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then he delivers us into the promised land once and for all, where his kingdom is firmly established. Please catch this for eternity on earth, on earth, right here on earth as it is in heaven. See, Genesis, I just... I want you to see that the Bible is not simply the story of how bad humans are, so you need to be good so you can get off this earth and go to heaven one day. But the entire Bible is summed up in the story and in the narrative of how God became king. And that's the narrative that the entire Bible points us to. I think it's time we stop making ourselves the center of the story. And we start asking questions like, what does this story point us to? Or how does it expose our need for a king to come and lead us in righteousness and in justice? And you already know, in peace. And maybe we need to stop fighting all these theological, cultural battles and start asking God how we've come to his scriptures with false assumptions and false frameworks and unhelpful questions at times. And maybe instead of sitting above the Bible and judging it, we sit humbly with it. And as we're exploring its pages, we ask God to, to correct our misunderstandings about Him and instead point us to Jesus. And we ask the Spirit to come and form us into people who are truly partners in the kingdom of God for, for His kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis, don't you see how we'll just miss this, this beautiful story of the Bible if we come to it with the wrong framework. We'll make it about all the wrong things if we lose sight of the unified story that leads to Jesus. And so I hope that that is the, the framework that you can go forward and as you're sitting in scripture and wrestling with it, that you're, you begin to see how God all throughout his creation and with humanity has been longing to redeem us and to restore us so that we could come under the rule and reign of our good and righteous King, Jesus. And so tonight, more than anything, more than a response time or whatever, I want to leave, I want to leave you with a moment of challenge. I want to challenge you to go forth from here. And the first one is this. I want to ask you to question the Bible, not ignore it. Really go deep in it. I want to ask, have you honestly read the Bible? From, from cover to cover, rip it apart. Give it your best shot. Uh, 
Dig into it in community, process with one another, debate with one another, argue with one another, go deep with one another, meditate on it until it becomes the song in your head and you begin to delight in it and it becomes honey to your lips. And then rather than listening to a YouTube video or a podcast that's 20 minutes long of somebody raising a point about why we can't trust the Bible and this out of the other, how about instead you go and explore it for yourself? And you begin to, to go deeper than you ever knew you could. And as, and as you do that, God will begin to uncover the beauty and the sacredness of his scriptures that Jesus so dearly loved. And then maybe a good way to do that is I would just invite you to commit a year of your life to reading the Bible. If you read three or four chapters a day, you can actually finish the Bible in a year. And a good resource for that would be the Bible Project. I mean, of course, listen to their podcasts, watch their videos, but they also have an app where you can do a year-long Bible reading plan. And it's fantastic because it's partnered with all their videos too. And it'll really help you catch the narrative from Genesis to Revelation as one cohesive and beautiful narrative. But Genesis, you've got to do it. You've got to sit down and read it. No more ignoring it. No more tearing it apart or accusing it when we haven't done the actual work to go deep and struggle with it and get to the other side. And so I hope again that you hear that in love and humility. I'm so grateful for all of you. You challenge me as I know I challenge you. And it's been the best doing it in community. And so let's not stop doing it together. Let's keep going deep with one another. And with that, I'm done. But I just want to ask the Lord, uh, just that simple revelation that he gave his followers on the road to Emmaus. I'm just going to pray for us and then wrap us up. Jesus, we love you so much. And if we're honest, we all know that we have man-made ideas in our minds of who you are or what you are. But Lord, I trust that your scriptures point us to everything we need to know in this moment about who you are. And so God, I just, I just pray that you open our hearts in humility and love just to receive your scriptures as you meant for them to be written, as the authors communicated them so wonderfully and beautiful in the language that they used. And Lord, that in that, you would, your spirit would craft us, point us first to Jesus, and then craft us into people who are partners in your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen. See you guys.